0: Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. One of the issues many people face is gut health. Gut health is very important as it's key to having a strong immune system. There are many different approaches out there to how to treat gut health and many involve food nutrition. Here to talk with me about gut health from a traditional food perspective is registered dietitian, Laura Pomathis. Laura, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: great to have you here. We've known each other for a little while. We've seen each other different food conferences, and I know we've talked about this podcast for a while now, so I'm glad we finally have it happening. Heck yeah. All right. Let's get going. How did you first become interested in being a dietitian?
1: Yeah, well, I started kind of being interested in health and wellness around high school because I was in sports. I was a runner, and um, I guess that's kind of the pathway that got me into thinking about health in general um, and noticing how, you know, changing what I ate affected performance and those types of things. And I knew I wanted to do something with that for my career. And I wasn't sure, you know, exactly what it was, but I knew something in healing, healing arts and something to do with, um, wellness. And, um, I eventually landed on nutrition after thinking maybe I want to do body work or all these different things. Um, but nutrition really piqued my interest because I love science and, um, I love the idea of getting to talk to people about how to be healthier and make their lives better. Um but also I mean I come from food people as I would call them like the a lot of the people in my in my family are wonderful cooks. One of my grandmas had a restaurant. Like I, just everyone seems to really love food and so when I was you know trying to find a, kind of a healing healing arts, I guess you would say path um food seemed like like a good fit, <laughs> because mm-hmm. the science and just the love for food and cooking that I already had.
0: Interesting. I mean, some similar things with me, because I did sports in high school. I did track one year, and I wrestled for most of high school. And with wrestling, it was an interesting thing, because back then, at least, I hear not as much now, the whole thing of weight loss, of getting to a certain class, and mm-hmm. a lot of the methods that they had were not what I approve of now, because it was very much an encouragement of a low-fat diet and it did actually get me interested in nutrition back then of course I also always had my interest in working in entertainment and so (laughs) obviously you know which path I have but things kind of did lead me back to nutrition and I mean this show is kind of an example of what I'm doing where I can do both things both entertainment and discuss issues of nutrition and also environment all three things which interest me and food too.
1: Yeah, you get the best of all the world. It's awesome.
0: Exactly. That's what I love about doing this show. So now, I know when you were in college, you did study nutrition. And how did that differ from what you recommend now in terms of what you learned then?
1: Yeah, well, I went to the University of Missouri um, and their dietetics program was very conventional um, and totally not bashing on it. love loved going to that school. Um, but yeah, it's very conventional in terms of what we were taught to coach our clients on for, you know, improving their health through nutrition. So, you know, this was in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, so that would have been like talking about a low-fat diet and, you know, if someone's diabetic, tell them to drink diet soda instead of regular soda and, you know, some of these very new ideas about nutrition that really only started in the mid 20th century, you know, with the the diet-heart hypothesis and all these things that you and I know, and lots of people probably listening know, is is, is not true. <laughs> um, that we need these good fats and and these types of things for our heart health. Um, but those things were certainly certainly taught, and just the idea that I don't know, it just felt very like we're teaching people about nutrition after the fact. There wasn't a huge emphasis yet on prevention. I'm guessing now in even conventional nutrition programs there's more emphasis on that, but I didn't feel that there was a strong focus on prevention. It was more about treatment um, when something's already gone wrong. But yes, I never learned about a lot of the things that I do use now or do myself, uh, you know, in cooking and, and those types of things at home. It was not something I learned about in school. And, you know, there's been a lot of self-study and doing my own research after the fact school-wise to get me to where I am now in my kind of healing path that I use with people. But, you know, I was kind of a, I don't know, weirdo in my my nutrition program. I, you know, I worked at like a health food store and a juice bar and like... (laughs) was all into organic and stuff. And, you know, we were taught that, it, you know, organic didn't really matter in terms of nutrition, you know, it was just that it didn't have pesticides or, you know, even that was kind of like, well, we're not sure if if there's residues, and you know, they're like, there's no nutritional difference. I distinctly remember that conversation and kind of getting into a battle. And so, you know, I always felt that I was going to take a different path. And I knew I didn't want to always work in a hospital, which I did for a time. But I was like, okay, I don't fit the mold of what kind of everyone else is believing or or using for their nutritional approaches. So I knew I'd kind of have to forge my own path. And that, that was well before I found out about like traditional diets and Weston Price and, you know, ancestral health and all that stuff. So luckily I've kind of like found my people and so I'm not, <laughs> you know, a lone wolf out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how did you end up finding out about traditional diets, Weston Price, Ancestral Health Society?
1: Yeah, I actually, I was, so in college, like I said, I, I was an oddball. I was, I was actually a vegan. I was, you know, really into veganism. And even though I was into like fermentation and, and those types of things and like organics and local food systems and, and all of that, I was still into veganism. So, you know, you're young, you you know, you can be short-sighted or not see, not see the full picture. And so I was really into fermentation. And I, at the time I, at one point I later lived in Indianapolis and there was a fermentation local company there called Fermenti Artisan.
0: Oh yes. Love those guys.
1: Yeah. And so I, I had known them just from like the farmer's markets and stuff. And I always got there and, you know, I always talked to them about fermentation and they were like, oh yeah, I remember they're like, well, you know, We'd like, you're all into health, but you can't be healthy if you're vegan. And that was just kind of like, to me, I was the healthiest person I knew because I was like, well, I'm vegan and blah, blah, blah. But it kind of shook my worldview, I guess, because they had all the Weston Price pamphlets and information at their farmer's market booth. And so I started reading through that and started doing some more research and kind of like cracked my brain open. <laughs> and I did basically a 180 within you know a short period of time after that and started eating animal products again and and all these different foods that I had excluded for so long and it was awesome. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I found out about them and then I was as I usually am with things that I get excited about, I was very gung-ho and that's kind of like and no, I'm the chapter leader for our area here in southwest Wisconsin um and the Viroqua area and yeah, so I kind of dove in head first and was super excited about all of that. Uh, from that point
0: on. Right. So it sounds like you've learned from a lot of different perspectives. You've taken the traditional registered dietitian approach, which is the most conventional. And I mean, there is some stuff in there that leans towards veganism, although it doesn't completely vilify meat where you should totally avoid it. So I'd almost say that that's one approach is RD. Veganism is another approach. Mm -hmm. And Weston Price is obviously a third one Do you think that having studied basically these three different perspectives on nutrition, that's really helped you see the big picture?
1: I do think that. and, And I feel like I understand not only kind of the different ways of eating and like all the different kind of diets that there are out there, but also why people come to different dietary approaches. And I feel like as a you know, in my job, you know, have a private practice. I'm not just telling people what to do. I'm also coaching them on, you know, why these changes are hard or how they, you know, why they choose the foods they do and kind of overcoming their barriers. And I and I feel like having tried a lot of different approaches, even more than the three we kind of talked about, you know, I feel like I have a better understanding of of that coaching piece of like people's connection to food and what they eat and how we can use that for good when we're trying to make dietary changes for our health.
0: There is a lot of stigma in our world of Weston Price and these traditional diets about being an RD, (laughs) but I think in some ways it's important to actually learn what the conventional way of nutrition was for a number of reasons. I mean, one, a lot of people that come to these areas, they weren't born into that, so it helps you understand what they went through, and I think it also just helps you understand why... The methods of things like holistic, functional nutrition—why they work better than the conventional ways?
1: Yeah, I'm grateful that I went through that program, and you're right. It, it is kind of a RD can be kind of like a naughty word in the, like the ancestral world because most RDS do kind of preach the conventional, you know, nutrition handbook. But there are more and more RDS who are kind of in the ancestral health world, which is super you know, wonderful to see and connect with those folks. But I'm really grateful that I went through that program, like you're saying, so I understand what the mainstream narrative is around food nutrition and how to kind of like tailor my message to clients through that lens. You know, if they're coming from that lens, then I can kind of, you know, not just talk to them like, yeah, they know exactly what how to cook sweetbreads, you know, like it, it. It is a process to change your diet. I'm also really glad I did it because I just took an immense amount of science classes, and I love that. So if I had just done self-study or another type of nutrition program that maybe gives you some sort of certification, not that those are bad, but I really got to do a lot of science and microbiology and biochemistry and organic chemistry and all the stuff that I really, really loved. And I think is important to understanding why all these ancestral nutrition principles are helpful and beneficial and why they're true. And I also learned how to like read research. And so when I can actually read a research paper and, and interpret it and not just like read the headlines or, you know, read a bad study. And I'm like, well, this study <laughs> is bunk. So, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to have that scientific background as well, but I'm grateful I did it. I probably would do it again. Still be the oddball.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hey, sometimes I think being the oddball is a good thing.
1: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs>
0: One of your major areas in your practice is gut health. Why do you see gut health as important to overall health?
1: Yeah, gut health is my thing. I love it so much. Um, I think I got into gut health as kind of my niche because of my love of fermented foods and fermented foods, you know, having those probiotics got me really interested in digging into gut health. And I think it's so important because, you know, we think of gut health as digestion, which is obviously very important, but the gut is connected to so many areas of the body that that it's really important to address that, really, if we're addressing any other kind of health issues. So, you know, it, like you said earlier in the podcast, it influences your immune function. There's the, you know, the connection between the gut and the brain, that gut-brain axis where the health of your gut and your microbiome can influence your, your mood and your mental health. And I think that's obviously really important. You know, so many of those neurotransmitters that make us feel happy or calm or satisfied are made in our gut, not necessarily in the brain. And so to be able to influence um, mood and mental health is impactful, you know, at this time, especially, you know, they're discovering there's a gut thyroid axis and there's a ton of a thyroid dysfunction in this, in this kind of like modernized world. And you know, impacting fertility and the skin and inflammation and how we absorb nutrients so we could eat this really beautiful nutrient-dense diet. But if we come at it with a You know, if we start with a damaged gut, then we might not be getting everything we can out of it. So I just feel like the gut is kind of this, you know, a center of a web connected to so much else in the body that I feel like it's got to be addressed to be able to even touch anything else. Um, And, you know, if you do have digestive problems, even if these other areas don't seem significant, to you if you do have digestive problems that can really like rule your life in a way if you have you know food intolerances or major GI issues that can kind of be the focus of your life so helping people to heal from that so that they can kind of live freely again and enjoy food and not suffer you know I think that can be really really beautiful to see happen (laughs)
0: You talked at the beginning about how you gotten into gut health because of your love for ferments. Has fermented foods been something that you've always enjoyed eating?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was a little little kid, and and I grew up on a very like standard American diet for the most part. I wasn't super picky, so I would try just about anything at any restaurant. But I, you know, I still ate a lot of McDonald's and Pop Tarts and stuff. Um, <laughs> but I loved pickles and sauerkraut even when I was like a little kid, and so they probably weren't the. Lacto fermented live cultured versions that you know I have today, but I from a very early age loved those types of foods, and so, as I got older and learned about real fermented foods or more traditionally prepared fermented foods yeah i've I just love them more and more the first The first fermented thing I ever made myself was kombucha, and that's when I was like i don't know a sophomore or junior in college and no one else knew what it was, and there, there was just the, – I had the, this weird thing in my apartment when I had my, my scoby in there. And so, yeah, I've had many roommates throw away tempeh they thought was moldy. I'm like, it's supposed to be. So, yeah, I loved them for a long time, and now that's a big part of my work, you know, work along with the private practice is teaching uh, workshops on things like fermentation because it's such a good skill to have, and it's, they're so delicious.
0: Sauerkraut <laughs> <laughs> is something which is pretty new for me, eh? feel like it was something, as I know my mom is not a fan of it at all, <laughs> that I didn't eat too much of it, and I did start eating it once discovering Weston Price, and now I love it. Mm. But on the other hand, pickles, I look at pickles as actually my first introduction to real food, mm. and I was very fortunate to be eating real pickles. There's this company, Don Herman's Pickles, which they're sold somewhat nationally now, but they did start in Ohio and not too far from where I grew up. And even I think one of the family members there knew my uh, aunt at Temple. So you know, being raised as a Jewish kid in the Eastern Cleveland suburbs, I was introduced to this great kosher dill pickle, which was made the traditional way. Oh, I love it! It's great. I, I really look at that as my introduction to uh, really getting into real food because I see actually fermenting as a big thing of traditional food not just with veggies but if you even look at it properly raised animals there's a fermentation aspect grass-fed beef the thing is it's healthier for you because the grass has fermented in the cow's stomach
1: Mm, yeah it's it's part of everything it's you know fermentation's part of like soil health and you know because there's all this microbial activity going on and Um, you know, composting. And yeah, it can, it can be part of of so many different things. And like you said, yeah, it's not just veggies, you know, even a lot of our favorite foods are fermented, you you know, and people don't realize it, like, you know, beer and wine, you know, those types of things. But, you know, pickles and sauerkraut, a lot of people may not even know that those can, you know, can be a fermented food. And, um, you know, I would say yogurt's probably the most popular fermented food, you know, in like, the U.S. at this time. Like, a lot of people eat yogurt who maybe don't eat any other fermented foods, and so that's a good... If you aren't, you know, growing up in a Jewish community with awesome real pickles, (laughs) most people's (laughs) first fermented food is probably yogurt at this point, and that's probably one of the first real fermented things I ate as a kid. But, yeah, if you can get any in the diet, you know, I think that's a good start.
0: I would agree with you about yogurt being the most popular. Pickles, the thing with them is I think they're a little of an acquired taste. You have some people really love them but i also meet a lot of people who don't like pickles
1: i don't understand them (laughs) they're my favorites yeah but yeah i don't get that either a lot of people have like the neon green like sweet pickle relish and they're like i don't like pickles and you're like oh if i could just give you a real pickle
0: oh i don't (laughs) like sweet pickles at all i say sweet pickles why like it defiles a pickle I actually recently, by mistake, ordered pickles that, they were called sweet and spicy, and I just heard the spicy part. I thought, oh, okay, well, they're saying it's not too spicy, but I realized that they actually meant these were sweet pickles with a little spice, and, oh, I basically, what I had to do was uh, put some stuff in the brine, put some, like, hot sauce and other things in the brine to make it where the pickles were spicy enough.
1: There you go, zhuzh it up a little bit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so pickles, that could be someone of a acquired taste. Sauerkraut, which is such a beneficial food, even more of an acquired taste. So I've seen a few companies do a thing now, which I think is brilliant, where they make a dill pickle kraut. And that can kind of be a gateway kraut to people who don't want to eat it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And their companies are really out there making all sorts of wonderful, wonderfully flavored, you know, sauerkrauts and things like that. So people don't have to be as scared I guess of trying sauerkraut if they've never had it, and they didn't grow up with it, but if you can acquire the taste for it, you know you should because it's it's you know like you said it's so beneficial, and you know in terms of like you know putting up food and those types of things, if that's something you can make yourself, it has you know two ingredients it's got cabbage and salt, so you can really you know store food with a lot of nutrients that has very little input budget-wise, food-wise, time-wise, you know, it's like, it's simple and it's a good starter one.
0: And if you've only had pasteurized sauerkraut, that I say you really haven't had kraut? Because as a kid, Mm -hmm. I didn't like sauerkraut for the main reason, like when I'd be at an Indians game and they'd put this thing called sauerkraut or what they call (laughs) sauerkraut on my hot dog and I'm like, ugh, this is bad. (laughs) And then when I discovered real sauerkraut at Wise Traditions conferences or monthly chapter mm. meetings of the local chapter. Then I realized what good sauerkraut is. I still don't like pasteurized sauerkraut.
1: <laughs> yeah, if it's come, especially if it comes in a can, you're like it kind of tastes like metal. But yeah, you know, there's people. I think people are becoming more open to real fermented foods, and even you know, people who eat quite conventionally, you know, are are being more and more exposed to that. Just because it's you know, if you go to Walmart or any you know regular grocery store they almost all of them have kombucha and kimchi and things like that. So it's not as fringy as it used to be, which is great because more and more people are going to start eating it, which is awesome.
0: It is. It's great that it is becoming more of a household name, things like kombucha Mm -hmm. and more people are eating sauerkraut now. So these are all foods that you can get to improve your gut health, and that is one way. There's a couple other foods which we'll get into in a little bit, but the other way that a lot of people go... About improving their gut health is doing elimination diets. Do you think Mm. that it's a bigger issue of people not getting enough foods in their diet than eating the wrong foods?
1: Yeah, I would say yes and no. I mean, I think the root cause of a lot of the gut health problems that we see are because those traditional foods are missing. Certainly, there's some non-food related things like, you know, our toxic load and and stress and, and, and those types of things that definitely impact our gut health. But in terms of diet, that lack of diversity in the diet, lack of, you know, specific foods being being um kind of omitted from the diet and that's, you know, kind of the modern diet, I think is a big, big root cause of gut dysfunction. And so while that's how we kind of get to you know, imbalances in the gut, I do think a lot of people benefit from doing some sort of elimination diet as part of their healing protocol. So I guess I would just put an asterisk by that saying I don't think elimination diets of any kind are the only path to healing the gut, nor are they prescriptive in terms of like it's the only thing you have to do, you know. And you can kind of go, well, I'm just taking out gluten and so now I'm going to have good gut health You know, I I do think that is, it has too narrow of a focus and it's missing that kind of big picture. But a lot of people do benefit, you know, I use a lot of low FODMAP diets. I use a lot of, you know, the gaps or the the specific carbohydrate diet, things like that for a period of time to help kind of give the gut a break from things like fermentable fibers and starches that, that can be very irritating if you have a damaged gut. But I do think those are temporary measures to allow healing to happen um, but adding in what's missing, you know, from the from the modern diet, I do think is the ultimate key where the elimination diet is like, you know, kind of part of the Band-Aid, but it's not all that has to happen for healing. Yeah. So long answer to that. Yes and no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess my follow-up question would be, do you think it's very likely that a person could simply introduce more foods in their diet and not have to do any of these elimination diets?
1: Mm. I think it can be a good first step, you know, especially if if you don't have anything specific, you know, maybe diagnosed in the GI tract, um, or if you just kind of in general say, "Oh, I think maybe I I hear a lot about gut health. I really want to improve my gut health," and it's kind of maybe general, non-specific. Adding in those foods certainly is could be beneficial to, to a lot of people, and of course, this is all general. Uh, general recommendations no specific no medical advice or you know any specific things for any condition, but you know i don't think I certainly don't put every single person on an elimination diet, but I do think s- certain conditions I think really can benefit from that, and that's both kind of anecdotal what i what I've seen with clients but also in in the research but I also think a lot of times there's too much focus on elimination diets that they're the savior for the gut health that that's all I need to do and my you know my bloating will go away or 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 that type of thing and i think again we're still leaving out these key foods that i'm sure we'll talk about in a minute herbal support uh, addressing stress addressing you know kind of environmental toxins and you know like our cosmetics and cleaning products and emf exposure and all these different things that you know affect affect our gut health our sleep and and how much time we spend in nature and and all these types of things that, you know, have nothing to do with an elimination diet but have to be addressed if we want to have, you know, really rocking gut health. And then we can't just go back to the standard American diet. <laughs> you know, a lot of people will be like, okay, I'll do an elimination diet and then, you know, then I'll just kind of go back to how I was eating. It's It needs to be a, a whole shift in how we look at food and nutrition and eating um, in order to kind of have that healing happen but also to sustain that for in the long term.
0: Yes. So let's now get into the other types of food that you think are often missing in people's diets.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest one is, you know, those parts of the whole animal that are really kind of left out in the last few decades. (laughs) It wasn't always that way. And even within kind of one or two generations that they've really gone away. So I, you know, in more specific foods, I guess, would be things like organ meats, like liver and heart um those collagen-rich foods like bone broth and or meat stock and the cuts of meat that have the skin and the bones and can be, you know, that need to be slow-cooked because they have collagen in them. I, so I think that nose-to-tail animal foods is is a huge part of what's missing and why so many people experience gut issues. The amino acids in things like bone broth or, you know, collagen-rich foods help to maintain the integrity of the gut lining to help so we don't get things like leaky gut and that intestinal permeability. You know, we see there's a lot of that in kind of the modern world and people who have gut dysfunction. So eating the whole animal for reasons beyond gut health, certainly, just because they're the most, some of the most nutrient dense foods, but specific to gut health, those are extremely important. And then obviously fermented foods that we've already talked about because they are, rich in probiotics. A lot of them are also prebiotic containing, you know, the fiber that feeds the beneficial bacteria. You know, they also have enzymes in them often to promote digestion and lots of added benefits depending on what food you're talking about fermentation-wise. Some have an increase in vitamin C or B12 or, you know, vitamin K2, all these different things that are increased by fermentation. But because they are probiotic and have these other kind of digestive supporting components i think ferments are huge and you know used to be a big part of people's diets up until very recently
0: yes because that's what it is these are all what we call traditional foods meaning they were once yeah. a big thing
1: yeah yes and then i think you know other foods that are missing are the healthy fats that have a lot to do with gut health you know where we've been told Certainly, I was told for a really long time that you need to, you know, eat a low-fat diet. Um, that fats are bad, cholesterol is bad, and and in fact, we need those foods for for our overall health, but specifically gut health. And we're missing those a lot. And when a lot of times, when we in the the modern diet, when we do turn to fats, they're the the processed seed oils, um, and vegetable oils that create inflammation and and don't promote good health. So. Those, you know, mostly animal fats are what I'm referring to. Things like lard and tallow and butter, but even the, even some of the plant-based fats can be really beautiful for gut health. You know, real cold-pressed olive oil and coconut oil, avocado oil, and those types of things that have been, you know, in traditional diet if they are processed in a way that leaves them (laughs) with a lot of nutrients.
0: And organ meats are similar to that because one reason people eat less of them is, oh, they just, they don't like the taste of them, especially liver, which is the most beneficial organ meat. And that's another thing that's Mm -hmm. misunderstood. As Chris Masterjohn explains, the liver in any animal's body is not a coffee filter.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. It doesn't just store everything there yeah and most of you know a lot of the toxins or unwanted things that you would eat in an animal actually stored in the fat and so you know getting liver from a good source is is really important but just getting liver in the diet in general i think is is really important even if you can just do it once a week and it is an acquired taste yeah if you think sauerkraut is an acquired taste try liver i was but, just thinking um, the
0: same thing yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's worth it. You know, I'm a big proponent of incorporating it. I don't like to say sneaking or hiding, but incorporating it into other dishes so that it's, you know, a little bit more palatable to those who don't love it. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I, it's not my favorite food to eat. Mine it's my favorite food. Like, yeah, I love, you know, I, it's my favorite nutritionally speaking, but, you know, I I will, you know, grind it in the food processor and mix it with ground beef or pork or, you know, other ground meat to put into dishes so that I, you know, don't have to, don't have a strong uh, taste to it, you know, but things like pate or, or, you know, things like that where you're, or a moose where you're using maybe a poultry liver, that's a lot more um, mild tasting. And so that's a really nice introduction to liver and you feel fancy too, you know, (laughs) if you have you know, like an ethically raised foie gras or pate or something like that, maybe you feel like you're eating, you know, fine dining where it's, you know, liver and onions might feel, it might not be something that is super exciting to you (laughs) or a good introduction to it.
0: (laughs) Yes, I still really can't eat liver on its own. I need to mix it into Mm -hmm. something. And a lot of times what I do is I have ground chicken liver mixed in with ground beef. My go-to liver Mm -hmm. product is making my award-winning chili With liver now, now just so people ask, no. When I when I've made it, where I've won these awards at this local bar, no. I I knew my audience and. It didn't have liver in it then. I I wish it could be that great that my, you know, beef liver chili won the award, but no, I do it though basically the same recipe, just the one difference of when I serve it for me is I mix in a little chicken liver with it.
1: hmm That's an awesome idea. Yeah, chili meatloaf. That's a big uh That is a great one. Oh yes. And yeah. also
0: anyone who's attended the Wise Tradition Conferences, they always serve the organ meatloaf.
1: And it's so good.
0: That is. Yes. So, are those the products that you typically would recommend to your clients to try if they don't want to do just regular liver on its own?
1: Yeah, definitely incorporating with other things or or doing a pate. And if someone really, really just can't do it, they can't eat liver. They, you know, something about cutting it up or even just cooking it. If the smell is too strong, that can take some getting used to. And if you're just not there yet, you know, and, and diet wise you know, until you're there, (laughs) you know, just making sure you're getting lots of other nutrient-dense foods that have some similarities to liver, like getting, eating lots of egg yolks, getting in some oysters, um, and, you know, oysters and other seafood, you know, that can also give you some of those awesome minerals, especially, you know, getting butter and full-fat dairy. When you eat animal foods, Try it as much as you can to have it with the skin and bones and, you know, get some other nose-to-tail things like broths in your diet. And and it's really, you know, you can take a supplement of liver if you really can't do it, um, which I recommend to people pretty often because some people are just not there. And so you can get the kind of, like, desiccated liver capsules that, you know, sometimes people call them a glandular. And you take the capsule and you get the liver and it's just, you know... (laughs) You don't have to taste it, so that can be an okay
0: for people looking to take the liver supplements. I would recommend Ancestral supplements. We've seen them exhibit at the Ancestral Health Symposium that we were at a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and they have grass-fed liver in their supplements.
1: Yes, and they have their products are great. And I'm not affiliate, uh, you know, I'm not like advertising for them necessarily, <laughs> but their products are great because they are. They also have like ev- almost every other organ you can imagine in like a you know a encapsulated form. especially those that can be hard to get if you don't know a butcher, if you don't know a farmer, it can be hard to get organ meats. And so, you know, capsules from that or another, you know, reputable brand that uses, you know, ethically raised animals um, that have, you know, that are pastured and all that. Um, That can be a good alternative and I think is totally okay to do if you're just not there. You know, I get it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's another product recently to hit the market using organ meats. And it's, I don't know if you've heard of, it, it's called pluck and they're a seasoning that uses organ meats as its base.
1: I have not heard of it. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> oh, well yeah. After the show, I'll have to give you a little information about where to find them.
1: Heck yeah. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. So getting it in other ways, I think it's totally fine. And you know, like I said, take a capsule, but also getting those other um, really nutrient dense animal foods in there. If you're not ready for liver. Um, or trying other organ meats, you know, maybe as a good introduction, you know, before liver, like heart has a much milder flavor. Tongue has a milder flavor. Uh, you know, even things like sweetbreads can be a little bit milder in flavor. So they're easy to incorporate into dishes and, you know, aren't so overpoweringly organy <laughs>
0: sometimes. Heart was my introduction to the organ meats. I had the hmm. fortune at one of the local Weston Price chapter meetings, our doctor who regularly attends and encourages her patients to eat organ meats, she brought chicken hearts, and they were so good. Yes, chicken hmm. hearts are one that I can eat on their own, unlike liver, and I usually eat them about once a week now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, heart's really, really, really nice. And, you know, it is a muscle, right? So it's it has more of that flavor. It certainly has kind of a... Oh, I don't know. Earthiness, uh, Mm -hmm. mineral taste, you know, but it's, you know, it's kind of a hybrid between muscle meat and organ meat. So it's going to be a great introduction and it grinds really nicely. Um, Like if you have a meat grinder or use a food processor, so it's really nice to, you can, you know, grind it into a, into a, like a ground beef mixture really easily. And yeah, that's a great introduction.
0: Yeah. Another advantage of chicken hearts is because I know some people, Don't want to eat chicken as much because it's a white meat. But Mm -hmm. I think it's important to get a diversity of animals into your diet because that's how traditionally we've eaten is we didn't just have access to mammals, to red meat. So we really need to get all of it. But chicken hearts are definitely a darker cut of chicken.
1: Yeah, and if you're going to do poultry, you know, have it be, you know, with the skin and bones. Yes, and, very and, important. And the organ meats and yeah, I kind of think of like the animal foods in like tiers I guess. You know, like prioritizing uh, you know, ruminants and and seafood and then, you know, kind of eggs and dairy and then maybe poultry, you know, after that. That's kind of like a general way I think about it. But yeah, it's if when you have them, you know, if it's less often because, you know, they have more omega six um fats in them but yeah, when you do it, make it be the whole bird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As we talk about the organ meats, these are ones that typically you would buy from a rancher. I mean, unless you have a family cow. So that's one way to go about them. But the foods we were talking about earlier, broths and sauerkrauts and other ferments, those can either be made at home or you can buy them in the store. Do you think that it's best that people make these ferments and broths themselves? Or do you think the store ones have... Just about equal advantage.
1: Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, in general, I think people just have to cook. I think it's a really important part of being human, raising. And, you know, if you are in a space to raise food, maybe it's just a, an herb pot in your apartment, but raising and preparing food, I think, is, is so important for us. And so if you maybe you're not ready to make all your food from scratch, but I think we just have to start cooking more. And it's that's a huge piece that's missing in the in the modern diet. It's not just what we're eating, it's that we're not cooking. And, you know, I really think that a lot of the, you know, we say, people say like you eat with your eyes first. And even when you like see and smell your food, you start to the salivate and the digestion begins. But I think that begins... Well before the food's even prepared, I think it's while you're preparing it, and you know there's the interaction with you know in terms of fermented foods there's the interaction with your your own body's microbiome and the microbiome you know or the the biome of your home when you're touching and preparing this food, so I think interacting with your food meets a core need that humans have both kind of mentally and spiritually but also physically and sometimes you're going to get foods that are prepared from the store especially if you're just trying them out, so you know i I definitely hold space for both of those realities where we've got to start cooking more and both like foods we're familiar with and new foods that maybe are like more of those ancestral traditional foods but when we're we're not in this space to do that or we're not we don't know how to do it, maybe we need to take a class or you know read a cookbook or you know whatever that may be, I do think there are some brands that would be able to be very very similar i I would never say they're a one for one match, but I think. There are more more brands coming out all the time that are really real food versions of these things I'm talking about. So, like broths and ferments and animal fats and cultured dairy and all these types of things. I've seen uh, real growth in the. I'm sh- obviously you have. I'm sure you have too. Oh, yes, in the market <laughs> for that. So I, not that I would say any specific brands, but it, it necess- I'm sure that would be. That's more your wheelhouse. <laughs> but very much. <laughs> you know, I think if you're going to a store that is you know maybe health food store has a really strong focus on local foods or getting it directly from a producer you know for fermented foods making sure it is not pasteurized that it's, it says live active cultures um or maybe it says lacto fermented on it and for broth you know it needs to be you know i would look for ones that are made from pastured animals i think it's important that meat stock or broth gels you know to show how much collagen it has so if if the broth is like very thin and runny and doesn't have kind of any gelatinous quality to it, maybe, you know, maybe find one that does so that, you know, got all the good stuff in it. So those are some examples. I think, you know, animal fats like lard and tallow, there's some great brands out there. I don't think you have to render your own, although I do, and I think it's wonderful and makes your house smell nice and meaty. But um, <laughs> if if you don't have a farmer to buy that, you know, uh, you know, suet or, or pork fat from, you know, I think getting a nice quality one is a, is a totally fine swap to make.
0: I would say the tallow one's one of the harder ones. So, yeah, that one,
1: mm-hmm.
0: don't stretch yourself out too much trying to make your own. Mm-hmm. That one you can get. And, yes, like you were saying, yes, I have seen a lot of great products on the market for broths and krauts and other ferments. And a lot of it has changed since I first started my blog about 10 years ago. When I started oh, I it, I don't think I could find any in the supermarket that were real good broths. I mean, maybe there was a store here and there that made their own broth and that was maybe okay. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was just the shelf-stable ones that were cooked really quick. It wasn't even often pasture-raised chicken or grass-fed cows. But now it's exploded and there are a lot of good options for broth. And also when I started, there were maybe a couple sauerkrauts, but there have been a lot more sauerkrauts have hit the market that are the real kraut, not the one we're talking about that are in the can and on the shelf. These are refrigerated fermented krauts. And yes, and um, you know, there, there's so many great ones. I have many recommendations for them. So I would say I have a lot of blog articles on that you can find that if you search broth or kraut on my blog, as well as a lot of these people have been on the podcast and I want to get all the more on there. So also search mm-hmm. through old podcast episodes and you'll see which ones I recommend.
1: Yeah. And like, if you, you know, if you live in a, an area with a decent kind of local food scene, you know, there's probably a local producer of these foods, um, or at least semi local, um, you know, maybe not at the, at the farmer's market or at your health food store, or you know, kind of direct sales or all these types of things. And, you know, finding those, those that are kind of Right by you, you might be surprised how great they are, and you know buying directly from a farmer is you know in terms of the not prepared foods necessarily, but for meat and and eggs and and raw milk and all these types of things that are really just super wonderful for the gut. If you can buy directly from a farmer that's wonderful. You know, I just have to put that plug in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It is amazing, really, at how many cities have their own great local food scenes because I live in Los Angeles and I think that one is one people expect and I just thought, well, you know, I'm fortunate to have all these there, but for my blog just a few weeks ago, Cleveland, my hometown, had its uh, 225th anniversary and I wanted to do this social media post of all of these different products in a photo that these are all local Cleveland-produced products, and there were a couple that I know about that have made it national, companies like Cleveland Kitchen and Chill, those ones you can find throughout the country, but there are a couple of products that are just getting their start in Cleveland that I learned about more than I thought, so I imagine that most cities are like that, that if you just do the research and dig a little deeper, you'll find they have a lot of great local artisan foods.
1: Yeah, I've had Cleveland Crowd. It's great.
0: It is, yes. Yeah, they've yeah. been on the show and and they've been very successful. And actually, we talked about earlier in the show about how, you know, it's great that you see some of these products even sold a place like Walmart for more people to be known about them. And actually, I mentioned how I used to go to the Indians games and I wouldn't like that pasteurized sauerkraut that they have on there. Well, mm-hmm. actually, the other uh, Cleveland Indians or the Guardians as they'll be next year. right? <laughs> all of the places there are using the sauerkraut from Cleveland Kitchen, the Cleveland Kraut, for their hot dogs.
1: Get out of here. That's awesome. That is. Wow.
0: Uh, that's great. Hmm. It kind of goes towards, I know Sally Fallon said that something she'd like to see before she dies is see non-GMO kombucha served at a ballpark. <laughs> this isn't quite that, but it's it's getting there. I, I believe there is one football stadium that serves a non-GMO kombucha. Oh, there's so perhaps we're, we're going that oh, direction. Yeah, stadium in L.A. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely going in the right direction. I think products are a great introduction to these foods that you're not used to so that you can get the confidence maybe to make them at home, get, acquire a taste for it without like kind of all the labor, and so you can do more and more of your own. But I think products are a great introduction for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think no matter where you live, yeah, dig around, look in your local stores or maybe even your Walmarts, <laughs> Or, you know, if that's all you have, if you can avoid going there, I would, but, you know, it kind of depends on where you live. But also contacting, if you are in an area that has a and A. Price chapter, if you contact the chapter leader, they have like a local food resource list of brands, maybe local brands um, and producers and farmers and, and all that kind of thing. If you don't know where to start.
0: Right. You can go to the website, org and there's a tab on there to find a local chapter. They have them all across the United States. And you can find then a contact information, either a phone number or an email where you can have them give you a resource list.
1: Yeah, it's really helpful. Like if you're new to an area or new to this way of eating or don't know where to get raw milk, you know, we don't all live in California where you can just go to the store. So, um, you know, it can be helpful to connect. And, you know, connecting with more people who are into good food is always a good thing.
0: (laughs) We've talked a lot about the different foods that you recommend for improving gut health. And I know another product which you recommend for gut health is digestive bitters. Can you explain a little bit more of what exactly digestive bitters are?
1: Yeah. So I guess I'll zoom out a little and just say that I think a big thing that's missing kind of a uh, envelop it in with what we were talking about a food or a type of thing that it's missing from the modern diet that's part of why we have so many gut health issues is the bitter taste. And so digestive bitters I think I would say is like a subset of that. I think the bitter is kind of the missing taste. It's been modernized and industrialized, kind of out of the food system. So now even healthy foods, you know, like fruits and vegetables have been, you know, bred to be sweeter or or juicier or have a longer shelf life or more pretty, you know, like in appearance. But that a lot of times takes out a lot of the, the bitter taste. And so that's a huge thing that's missing. You know, we now we tend more towards sweet or even savory and salty over bitter. Um, but, you know, in traditional diets, I think bitter foods, especially herbs, were a key piece of that kind of medicinal medicinal view of food. You know, it's the taste that really, really stimulates digestion. So, you know, and we also use less herbal medicine now. So, you know, even if people are like love bitter foods, they may not be acquainted with bitter herbs or um, digestive bitters. So I think that's a big thing that's uh, another big thing that's missing. Digestive bitters are an herbal extract, so a tincture where herbs are extracted into typically alcohol there are you know apple cider vinegar extract versions or ones that use glycerin for a non-alcohol version but the bitter herbs so things like maybe dandelion root yellow dock burdock gentian angelica those types of bitter herbs a lot of them are roots but not all of them are extracted either alone or in a combination In alcohol to kind of, this is not a scientific term, suck out all of the (laughs) medicinal components like the alkaloids and the different um, herbal constituents that give them their medicinal and uh, uh, kind of effective properties. Um, And then, so digestive bitters are usually a combination of multiple bitter herbs, and then you can take that either with or between meals to promote digestion of that meal or, or relieve symptoms, you know, if you have any between meals.
0: You talked about dandelion root. Are you a big advocate of dandelion tea?
1: Oh, I I don't know if I'd say big advocate. I I love dandelion, especially because you can find a lot of places. Of course, you have to be careful you harvest it. But I think it's kind of this like subversive herb that's kind of like it can persist even when there's not a lot of other plants growing. It grows up between the sidewalk cracks and every part of it, you know, has either, you know, edible or medicinal value. So I think it's a beautiful herb, but um, can be done in a tea. T- you know, you don't have to use bitter herbs in a tincture. You can definitely take them in a tea. Even things like ginger and chamomile are slightly bitter. They're also, you know, aromatic and and have other properties. But the, you know, they're more slightly bitter, so maybe a tea is more palatable. But even a lot of foods that people are starting to enjoy more. Again, we've talked about you know maybe palates changing lately things like really hoppy beer hops are uh, quite bitter and a lot of people are starting to love really bitter hoppy beer or dark chocolate coffee and tea have you know quite a bit of bitter property to them and some other foods like that where people are actually starting to appreciate the the more bitter versions maybe of foods even like a sourdough bread with a nice a nice crust on it some of that some of that browning will create a little bit of a bitter, a bitter taste. It's not just sweet, um, especially if you're using whole grains, it'll have more of the bitter quality. So, but herbs can be, even if you have a a really healthy diet that's, you know, diverse and nutrient dense, it's likely still a lot of foods, unless you do a lot of foraging, it's still probably a lot of foods that are domesticated. And I kind of think of bitter as I said, it was the missing or maybe the wild taste. And so, our ancestors maybe would have eat, would have eaten a lot of all wild food, not all wild food necessarily. There was some cultivation, but a lot of wild plants, and and those were you know many of them had a bitter taste to them. And their job is to kind of challenge the gut and cause stimulation in a way. So that's part of why I think having this taste gone has led to you know some imbalances in the gut. So. You have, you know, your bitter taste receptors on your tongue, um, but they're also found, the same receptors are found elsewhere in the in the gut and in the body um, where other taste receptors are not found. So the bitter compounds stimulate digestion starting in the tongue. It starts to stimulate saliva flow, bile flow, pancreatic enzymes, you know, like the gastric juices as soon as you taste it. But as you digest it, it also stimulates digestion, in non-tasting organs like the liver, uh, the stomach, the small intestine, and even they found those receptors in the lung and the brain. So bitter taste, you know, obviously great for digestion, but they you know, stimulates in other areas too. If you love science and the chemistry of plants and things like that, the book, The Wild Medicine Solution by Guido Mace, he's a big part of the Urban Moonshine Company. His book digs really deep into the science of of how bitters work in the gut and the body, but if you want to nerd out a little bit. Yeah, so stimulates all these things. It can even promote um, blood sugar control, managing appetite, because it helps your body kind of realize it's full sooner when things are, are functioning properly. And, you know, they promote motility through the gut, so you get less of the overgrowth of pathogens and those types of things. So I think Bitter foods in general are great, but because our diets are so domesticated, even the healthy ones, I do think adding in bitter herbs can be very, very beneficial and often uh, a big part of a a gut healing protocol as an addition to all the other wonderful foods.
0: And some of the foods you mentioned for bitters are also ferments. I think, of course, a lot of people know sourdough, but also two Mm -hmm. other ferments that people don't realize, which you mentioned, are coffee and chocolate.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. They go through a fermentation process, yeah. Yeah, and when we don't dilute them with, you know, lots of sugar, uh, you can, the, the bitter flavor really comes out, not to say that, that you wouldn't get some benefit in, you know, the non-tasting organs that have bitter receptors, but those that you really do taste can start stimulating digestion as soon as you put them in your mouth, which is really wonderful. And there's kind of a range, a spectrum of how bitter, you know, some herbs are, so if you're, you're not very... um, Accustomed to it, you know, maybe the really strong things like gentian aren't as appealing, and maybe you start with a milder, less bitter, bitter <laughs> like ginger or chamomile or something like dandelion, even isn't as bitter as, you know, some of the herbs. But having them in a combination is nice because you can have a balance of flavors and maybe add some more aromatic herbs in there that give it some flavor and not just like pow bitter. And, you know, brand wise, I'm not sure, I don't know if this is one you've done a, a deep dive into, but. You know, if un, unless you like know how to make herbal extracts, you'll probably be buying these tinctures or, or remedies. So, finding ones that have herbs that work for your body, you know, that you like, you know, it's, you should enjoy the taste, even if it's a little, if it's a little challenging <laughs> and a little different. It can be, it can be good for you. <laughs>
0: Yes. You talked a little earlier about having the chocolates without sugar for mm. the benefits, and that gets into then a lot of times people want to eliminate sugar from their diet in order to improve gut health. What are your thoughts on eliminating sugar?
1: That it's hard? No. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yes, I'll agree with you on um, that. <laughs> I guess I'll be a little bit controversial in saying, like, I don't think you have to take out every you know morsel of sugar in order to have good gut health. Yes, agree with that um, too. <laughs> I certainly think that uh, diet high in processed foods, especially processed sugars, um, but not only processed sugars, contributes to imbalance in the gut, um, overgrowth of pathogens, less diverse microbiome, and you know leaky gut and inflammation, and all these things that we don't want in the gut. But I don't think, like we were talking about earlier with the elimination diets, I don't think going sugar-free is the end-all be-all. Now, I do think it's important to closely examine your relationship with sugar. You know, I jokingly said it's hard to take out and that's true. Our bodies are hardwired to want it because up until quite recently in human history, very difficult to get. And, you know, those um, concentrated sources of carbohydrates sometimes meant survival, right? So, they're delicious for a reason. Our bodies are very smart, but our physiology doesn't necessarily know that there's a grocery store full of food, right? So it's wired for survival and we have to honor that and not just be like, oh, why can't I kick this sugar habit? I'm so bad. It's like, well, there's a reason. And pairing that physiology with the food companies making things that are so, so sweet and so processed, you know, like high fructose corn syrup that our bodies are just not meant to to process. So all that to say, I do think taking out processed sugars is really, really important. But reducing your overall sugar intake, I think, can be beneficial for gut health. But I don't think it has to be your sole focus. But examining that relationship with sugar and, you know, thinking of, like, how often am I having something sweet is that really moderation? How can I kind of change my relationship with sugar if it's like my food that I use to cope and addressing, you know, our coping and skills in other ways? But certainly if you're looking to improve your gut health, taking out the processed sugars is really important. And and certain elimination diets take out certain sugars. You know, on, on the GAPS diet, you, you can have honey as a sweetener and, and you can have fruit, which, you know, is a natural source of, of fructose and, and some other types of sugars. But on the low FODMAP diet, you can have maple syrup and not honey, you know, so it kind of depends on what path you're following and what kind of a healing journey you're on. But more in the general sense of gut health, definitely taking out processed sugars, along with processed oils and processed flours, you know, those are kind of the the biggies along with, you know, like the preservatives and additives, but sugar can be a toughie. I'm not like, oh, sugar's the devil. I think it's it's really hard and we have to work at it and changing our relationship with it. But I don't think willing ourselves to never have one morsel of sugar ever again is the only way to be healthy. (laughs) I I don't believe
0: that. (laughs) I don't believe that either. And in regards to as you bring up processed sugar, now there's many different levels as to how far sugar can be processed. So the worst most processed sugar is something like high-fructose corn syrup. And then on the other end, there's the natural sweeteners. You talk about honey, maple syrup, and I'd also add things like coconut sugar or whole cane sugar. And then in the middle of it, you have cane sugar, which is probably, other than the high-fructose corn syrup and other GMO sugars, the most common thing you would see on the market. And it is definitely better than high fructose corn syrup or any sugar that comes from those GMO beets. But it is more processed than, say, something like honey or coconut sugar. Do you think there's a great difference in including as much natural sweeteners in your diet? Or is it more about just, in general, not having as many sweeteners and making sure that they're all non-GMO, not too processed Regardless of whether it's cane sugar or it's honey.
1: I would say it's both. I think it's twofold. I think reducing your overall sugar intake is really important, especially if you suffer from like dysbiosis. so imbalance in good and bad, bad quote unquote, I don't necessarily believe there's any bad microbes. but um, an imbalance of microbes in the gut and sugar of any kind can feed into that, you know, if you're really out of balance. But so reducing your overall intake for sure is a key step. But like you said, when you do use a sweetener, choosing those that are unrefined as close to their whole form as possible. And, you know, I guess in a way, a lot of these foods we've talked about are quote unquote processed in a way, but I would say traditionally processed, you know, not industrial manufacturing processed. So things like, yeah, maple syrup, raw filtered honey, sorghum molasses, you mentioned like coconut sugar are great in small amounts and they still of elevate blood sugar, but I also, they also have their they have nutrition in them too, in a way, you know, maple syrup and sorghum molasses are rich in minerals. You know, they have things like manganese and magnesium and, you know, some iron even. So, and honey in its raw unfiltered state has enzymes and vitamins and, you know, for some people can help them with seasonal allergies. So if you find some that are not only less processed and more natural in their, you know, from traditional food ways, right? they also have nutrition in them. And and hopefully you'll want less of them because they satisfy you. But I do think they have something to offer to the diet other than just their sweet taste. Like I said, they have some nutrition. And, you know, and a lot of traditional diets did include things like that. And of course, fruit and properly prepared grains and root vegetables and and those types of things that offered carbohydrates that ultimately break down to sugar. I think it's more about those concentrated sources using them appropriately and just getting the right ones
0: Sounds good. We're just about out of time, but before we go, is there any last advice you'd like to give the listeners about gut health?
1: Ooh. <laughs> Address stress. So there's the all the food and and chemicals and how you eat and how fast you chew and And all these things that have to do with your gut health and how you digest food, but stress and your emotional well-being very, very, very much impacts your gut health. And I've seen a a huge change in people's gut health over the past year and a half, as you can imagine, because of stress. So really giving your stress level and your self-care as much weight if you're going through a gut healing journey, especially as your food.
0: And if the listeners would like to know more about your practice and some of the articles you've written, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, my website is com. So it just has my maiden name in it. So that's where you can find more about kind of my process, how to work with me, links to upcoming classes. So, you know, I teach a lot of uh, virtual fermenting and uh, other types of cooking classes. Sometimes with herbs. And then I have a blog that's brineandbroth.com, which my Instagram is the same handle, so you can see pictures of food and garden and all sorts of yummy stuff there. So that's at Brian and broth. And I actually have
0: one last question for you. Okay. The NFL preseason has just started <laughs> and I know you're a big Chiefs fan. How do you think yeah. they're gonna do this year?
1: I think they're gonna win the Super Bowl.
0: All right. Well <laughs> <let's see. laughs> All up. right. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are now released every Wednesday. I'm off next week, but in two weeks, I return to interview Sharon Brown, founder of Bonafide Provisions. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.